0: Welcome to Film Fight Club. I'm Glenn Falcon. i Falcons Green, and we are joined by Sydney filmmaker Chris Evans.
1: Sometimes. Hello.
0: And freelance writing critic for Art Nehru.
1: Rarely and always. Uh,
0: later in the program, not, not never really, sometimes always, but actually later in the program, we're going to be talking about the new Ron Howard film on Netflix, Hillbilly Elegy. It's gotten some press, let's just say.
2: The highly anticipated by critics hellbilly <laughs> and nobody else
0: yes. i would say <laughs> the extremely loud film of the year in many yeah. many respects yes we're also talking about happiest season and touching a bit on the kino sydney cabaret weekend that was the big warner brother news of the week and sff city film festival's announcement about the one wire retrospective um First things first, though, news of the week, the festivals that are happening. The Children's National Film Festival is currently screening at the Ritz and at some Melbourne cinemas for those playing from Melbourne. The Veterans Film Festival is screening online until the end of the month. The Japanese Film Festival Australia is currently screening in and around Sydney and the Antenna documentary film festival just announced a number of new screenings currently and going into the new year. Now, in terms of festival news, the the big news of the week locally is that Sydney Film Festival, in addition to a program running in late January at the State Theatre, have announced a retrospective coming up of director Wong Kar Wai.
1: I have waited, waited, waited so long for this. I think I was following this news initially when it was announced that Criterion were doing a retrospective uh, of 4k restoration of all his films yeah and so it was awaited uh, i think earlier this year around may
2: by the look of it it's going to be 4k restorations of his first seven films um i think my or maybe maybe more oh his seven films plus the hand the short plus um, the hand yeah previously part of an omnibus now extended to almost feature length um my blueberry nights uh the, and will not be restored and the grandmaster is sadly, by the look of it, screening in the, the American, American cut, which I think is quite severely inferior. Um, Wong Kar Wai says it's just an alternate cut, but it's built around demands from Harvey Weinstein to dumb down the film, essentially. It, so it's, it's, it's a shame that as part of a complete retrospective we're seeing that version instead of the one that he laboured over for ages.
1: It's weird um, because apparently when Criterion were first asked and they did say that they were restoring the Hong Kong version... I wonder if
2: there's just some rights problem with the Weinstein Company or whoever manages their um, library still owning the film in English-speaking markets, making it hard to screen the original version. But hopefully that will eventually sort itself out. I shouldn't focus on this one downside. It's amazing we're going to see his early films. um,
1: Yeah, I mean, some of the films, and Chris and I were discussing this previously before the show started. Yeah,
2: we can always uh, nerd out over Wong Kar (laughs) Wai.
1: Yeah, but the fact is, uh, on on his popular films, like In the Mood for Love, uh, yes, you know, Rightly loved, but some of the films that people might not know about are his earlier films and works. Happy Together is our favorite. Um,
2: Fallen Angels, before that, is is very style of a substance, but I, I think it's really going to sing on the big screen.
1: Yeah, and um, Days of Being Wild, which Days of Being Wild is is tanked at the box office at the time. Nobody seems to really talk about it.
2: But it's a beauty. No, I, I think I think real Wong Wong heads are into it. <laughs> Wong um heads. But yeah, no, Days of Being Wild's great. They're all great. Go to the Wong Kai Wai retrospective. It's in January and February at As Art Gallery of New South
1: Wales and Dendy yeah, Newtown. The, the,
0: the exact dates. It's in partnership with Acme. It is screening at the Art Gallery from the 16th to the 31st of January, and at Dendy Newtown from the 19th to the 18th
1: got an all season pass so I'm going to be there at all 11 of them which is going to be exciting but if you still want to watch only three or four of them mm. check out you know it's it's just a great thing given what's happening in and the world yeah, of cinema everything up to
2: 2046 is in a new restoration so in 4K it's going to look gorgeous yeah,
0: yeah. Um, another brief uh, aside in terms of film news, a couple of years ago we interviewed an Irish director called Trevor Burney who made a film called No Snow Not Alex Gimney about a massacre in Loughlin Island. We also reported shortly following the Irish Film Festival, which he came out for, that he had been arrested by the local police um, in connection with um, the film he made and some of his sources. It's recently been announced that um, he and his filmmaking partner have settled with the police for um, several hundred thousand pounds in, as, in a settlement. So Yep, bit of an update on that front. Uh, Mm. I'm sure it will go to funding um, his next movie. Yeah. Yep. Good for him. Good for him. Yep. Um, So, just briefly, Kino Sydney. Last, this weekend, Chris and I have discussed being part of the Kino Cabaret. It was Kino 155. It is a short filmmaking collective. People mostly around Sydney, but people from Melbourne come up too. You have 48 hours. You make a film. They screen once a month and people back an open mic night for films. But once a year... People get together and have a weekend of filming. Chris and I just did it. It was wonderful. It's worth going on the keynote page, checking out some of the films some of the filmmakers, and the keynote will be posting those regularly. But those are going to be having events come January and February months, so it's still very worth getting involved, and it's, a, it's still an extremely vibrant atmosphere. And it's
2: very good to be around people with a lot of energy coming out of the lockdown hell a lot of us have been in this year.
0: Yeah, I, I think, I like... Any artist, you have artists who have been itching to do work and have been repairing material. So these are all these artists who have been able to collaborate coming out of this long haul of, of not being able to work and not being able to do what they've always wanted to do. And suddenly having the people around them who also want to do the same thing. So a lot of incredible creative juices flowing. So yeah, check it out. Yeah. The next thing we want to talk about is Happiest Season. There was a pre run as part, or a couple of pre screenings as part of Queer Screen at the Newtown, the Brisbane Queer Film Festival, the Melbourne Queer Film Festival. It is in cinemas now. It stars Kristen Stewart and Mackenzie Davis and Virat Sora.
1: Yes, I was actually looking forward to this because uh, Claire Duval's previous film, her debut film, The Intervention, was actually quite funny. And I was very surprised at how unfunny. Happiest season turned out to be. I mean, I'm not criticising the fact that the films, you know, that this is a Christmas film, essentially, but with a twist. You have, you know, a central representation of a queer couple who's basically the centre of the narrative. And basically it's using the same template of a Love Actually style Christmas theme narrative to tell basically a, a cheerful Christmas story. So I'm not essentially against that I idea. hate
2: cheer and Christmas. It, it, it's exactly that. There are exactly many
0: on Netflix right now. You can go watch it. Uh, oh, dear. So many, so many. Yeah, but are so, there any queer ones? Not to my knowledge. There you go.
1: Yeah. I mean, so that's the thing. I mean, there is a bigger debate around representation and the fact that just because we do not have a queer Christmas film, is that enough to make an unfunny Christmas film? just because it's queer with queer characters. I mean, that's a bigger debate that we should have, or should we actually try to make a funny film while we're at it?
2: I think obviously we should try to make a funny film while you're at it, but what you're touching on has been kind of my ax to grind with um, critics lately, that I feel like a lot of films are getting rewarded for having good intentions, and because critics feel like they need to do their bit to encourage more of this, you know, positive representation or something for underrepresented groups or a, a positive feminist message or what have you, but they're ignoring the nuts and bolts, bolts of filmmaking and whether it
0: actually has much worth as a piece of art in terms of, you know, engaging the mind or emotions. If there's something that's come up on the show previously, I can't talk to any particular, I won't talk to any particular film in this example, but to say I Hold do on. think that filmmakers deserve credit when they pursue a novel premise or novel casting or a novel theme. Sure. Having said that if it's not pursued well, it also deserves to be called out like any other film. Sure.
1: I mean, in, in brief, I mean, just what the film is about, you have uh, the central couple with Abby and Harper, played by Kristen Stewart and Mackenzie Davis, respectively, and you have the central couple going to uh, Harper's family, which is a very, you know, you can say a conservative family, where the dad is running for mayor, so very politically charged, and so you find out... Cage. Yeah, essentially, and so you see all these Christmas narratives coming. It's a
0: falls, excuse me. Yeah, yeah,
1: you you have all these Christmas narratives coming to roost, coming home to roost. pardon the pun, uh, but <laughs> essentially, uh, you realize and suddenly you find out the twist is that Harper hasn't this come is, out to. A, this is
0: an early twist, to be clear. Yes, yeah, it's,
1: it's very it's very early. Okay, twist. this is
0: the setup. Okay, fine.
1: The setup is that Harper hasn't come out to her family, so you have the entire film, or the the laughs are played for the fact that a couple has to hide their identity and basically hide in the closet, quite literally, uh, while they're in the closet as well from the family.
2: Isn't it interesting that these kind of crossover to mainstream queer stories, like the early signs of we're getting formula rom-coms, but with queer characters like Love, Simon, and now this are framed around coming out narratives? Yeah. It's so the stock standard narrative. Like, I wonder when we're going to progress to a point where in mainstream representations, it's not a big deal.
1: Yeah, but also the fact is, what I'm not, I'm not trying to yeah. downplay people's um, experience like, with difficulty coming out and like, such. Like in Freaky
0: last uh, week, not wanting was to actually handle, which was handled quite well. Right,
1: it was. Yes. But well, what really sort of uh, girdled my goat, I don't know, is that an expression people use anymore? It is now. Yeah, <laughs> what really girdled my goat was the fact that essentially you have Abby's character, Christmas Stewart, who's playing a very grumpy, grinch, I hate Christmas kind of you know character, which we've seen in basically all stereotypical heteronormative templates of Christmas anyway. And so it is reinforcing that idea that Christmas is for... And you have everyone else who's basically passive-aggressive throughout the movie... And they can be broad brush stereotypes as people who are, you know, making fun of people who are, you know, queer or different but are playing up that Christmas spirit to indicate how accepting and actually, you know, progressive they are, a.k.a. the get-out template. I, I would have voted for Obama if I could have. Right, so right. we've seen this play out in other films. And now because of that, this feels... Like I've seen this and done that kind of you know feeling all over again. This is so on the nose and it's not funny at all. What is funny, however, and quite touching, are some of the cameo appearances by Aubrey Plaza and Dan Levi and Alison Brie. So the supporting cast actually is but a lot.
0: Actually, cameos. What it looked like for the marketing, they were major figures in the film.
1: Uh, they, I would say, they're extended cameos, given how much uh, screen time is spent on Abby and Harper's relationship, and they are basically carrying most of the film. They're extended cameos. They're quite a uh, breath of fresh air because they essentially are not playing to type, which helps to really bring some freshness to the film. But otherwise, this is a film which I was very confused why it exists, apart from the fact that, hey, let's make a queer Christmas movie. All right. All right thank you
2: for there's asking. There's some money in that. So.
1: There is, yeah. I'm, I'm not saying there's not a market for it, but I'm still... Confused why as a film it did seem to be made.
2: Yeah, why this one? This Surely one. there's some better examples of queer holiday scripts that haven't been given the green light,
0: or have otherwise been made but only screened on the independent circuit right. and have are now what 10, 15 years old, maybe more. Hmm. Yeah. So that is Happiest Season. It is in cinemas now. Uh, before we get on to Huberly Elegy, and you're listening to Glenn Falcone, chris Evans, and Varun Rue on Film Fight Club is we want to talk briefly about the really big film news of the week, is that Warner Brothers have announced that for the next year, beginning in Christmas, including Wonder Woman 84, that their slate of films will be released simultaneously on home release, Sorry, excuse me, not home release, on streaming, HBO Max in the US, and in cinemas. This is a big deal. Disney certainly made an announcement that they were pivoting to streaming. Yeah. But for Warner Brothers to make this move, um, they've come more hot out of the gate than any of the other major studios yeah
2: we're going to hear more specifics from disney about what their plan is but they've implied in the past that they'll do something similar to what warner brothers have announced it seems to be the way that most of the big studios are going that said i feel like this announcement was probably very rushed and i I think warner brothers are really unsure about it because we were hearing reports over the whole year about the um disputes over how to deal with Tenet and Wonder Woman 84, they really resisted putting Wonder Woman on a streaming service for as long as they could, um, essentially. Um, They've decided Christmas is the cutoff, it seems. They have to get it out this year. Um, But immediately after making this announcement, um, Legendary, because they financed 75% of *June* and... Um, king kong versus godzilla
1: that's legendary pictures by the way that's right you know, for yes. people who are listening yes are just... that's yes, right
2: thank
0: you for right, to be clear
2: big yes. now chinese owned um hollywood production funding it often funds big blockbuster films um yeah th- they've stepped in and said hang on you we we paid for 75 percent of the budget of these films you can't just put it on streaming and cut us out of the equation um so some of this may not come to pass what Warner brothers have announced is that every one of their films will go to streaming but um yeah clearly if there was no contact with legendary this is a very rushed announcement i've and the fact that it's only for one
0: year tells me that they're hedging their bets they're saying it's for one year certainly they have the discretion to extend it i'm waiting to see how this plays out certainly from a broader macro perspective i'm all fine with people having access to films and people being able to see this mm. where they are where they're comfortable being it, it will kill cinemas to a big extent if everyone does this i think though for me It's not just the major worry of how cinemas will survive. We discussed previously. Certainly my view is that cinemas will be very much around, but in the lesser form. Certainly not the independent art house cinemas. I think festivals may very well thrive in this environment, but I think what we're going to see, and it's fine with something like Wonder Woman and the big budget films that are being made, but if... Any major studio knows that their bread and butter is going to be people watching stuff on phones or at home. And then a lot of the emphasis on cinema, big screen cinema adventure is going to be withdrawn. Now, I'm not, I, I'm not talking about the big Marvel Cinematic Universe style films. I'm talking about the technical side of things, the effects, the sound design. There's going to be less emphasis on intricate visual effects, visual storytelling, but also sound, which is so essential. So a lot of technicians, a lot of artists in this field um, are very concerned right now as what this could mean and that they yeah. will have forums tell their stories maybe a lot of the studios will still place the same emphasis on what will be streaming as what would otherwise be in cinemas certainly there will be cinemas and films that will be made for the cinema di- uh, th- directly but there yeah. will be a lesser demand among studios for this higher technical level of filmmaking and cinema really takes sound to another level
2: I mean I just um have to mention David Lynch. I just saw Inland Empire in a theater <laughs> on Thursday, right? The sound work in that like in that, that cinema boxes, yeah. is incredible, you know? Um, but putting aside that film, it just shows like the the power of, you know, what you see something at home and then you see it in a theater and it's a completely different I mean, experience yeah. in in terms of what sound does. It just having a, a visceral reaction. Yeah. You I mean, know, like shaking you with bass. Nick, Nick
1: Cage's uh, performance. Showing subtleties. Uh, Nick Cage's performance in that film. Mandy. Mandy. Sorry. Mandy. Oh, right.
0: Um and Maddie has amazing sound as well. That's though. true. It does, yeah. and you know what? People criticize *Tenet* for the sound, but I enjoyed just the shocking, ge- the, sh- the, shock the shock of the, of the bass, the physical shock. We have to remember there is something physical to how sound is portrayed in cinema, which I can't afford a beautiful home entertainment system like many some do, and it's even close akin to cinemas, right? And um, most that's, people—that's what I meant think to bring back. up with
2: think the think *Inland Empire* think, example. Yeah. It
0: had a physical shock that I felt I
2: agree, know, I through mean, the rumbling bass
1: throughout. Thing, back to the opening sequence in *Tenet*, right? I mean. That really does sort of jolt you into your seat, and you kind of like thrown in the thick of the action. And a lot of that is to do with yeah. how the sound really kicks in, which is hard to do on your mobile phone speakers. And, and also, pe-
2: people have neighbors. You know, you can't <laughs> really yeah. so maybe when um, headphones is one thing, but yeah. being but, in a spa- be feeling the vibrations in the space around you and having other people experience it is, is so powerful but everyone can soundproof every room right exactly um one last thing about this because i i found it too funny not to mention um christopher nolan who notably was reported as i touched on earlier to have been feuding with warner brothers over when to release tenet and basically pushing them to release it in cinemas before warner brothers executives were comfortable with releasing the film um, he w- he was really pushing for it, so it shows how much sway he has with the company and how much the company is willing to bend to his will, um, and potentially lose tons of money just based on not alienating him. He he made the most bitchy kind of comment about this in the in the paper, Variety, I think it was.
0: I'm not sure. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. it, it yeah. was Variety. Variety,
2: yeah, 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 yeah. Um, where he said bunch of filmmakers have woken up this morning thinking that their films were going to be seen in amazing theatres and to learn that they're being screened on the the worst screening platform how do you think warner brothers are going to feel about this this guy publicly trashing their big push at the moment and are they going to give this guy such big breaks in the future no yeah, no, they. It
0: seemed like a crazy bridge-burning moment. Like this guy thinks he can get away with anything. To yeah, make. but it was the look. We have stuck our neck out for you. Yeah, I don't disagree with Nolan, but but there's it's professional. Cr- there's a professionalism. Exactly, they this, really stuck their head out for him, and he's he's giving a pull quote to and, everybody and, trying to take down thinks- their
2: biggest. For what they're saying is, is their future.
0: Priority and as I, business I appreciate he thinks there's a purism to it. Um, this is certainly the sort of thing we might have seen uh, from many other directors. But you know what? It's it's just he could have said it in a less I, like he could have said it privately and had a big impact. That's right. But honestly, yeah. uh, talk to the right probably, people maybe, behind maybe, the scenes. Maybe he, maybe he did. We don't know. Yeah,
1: but yeah. I mean that's that's kind of the thing. I mean, if you look at or hear from all the directors roundtables that have been happening with the Hollywood Reporter. Uh, the major concern for a lot of these directors, uh, especially from that era, has been the fact that they're very concerned about the future of cinema and what the studio system is going to do to it. Yeah. Even Fincher and Mank, I mean, what we were discussing just last week, that is coming out of that apprehension and quite literally from that sense. So uh, I feel like if Nolan is voicing these concerns publicly, I think he's already tried the private route and now he's just like, it's falling on deaf ears, so I'm just going to go all, all Hail Mary and see mean, what that, can...
0: that doesn't mean I agree, but uh, he's... it's, it's He it's, must it's be out, very angry, very now. desperate, and... Uh, Thinks he's representing a lot of filmmakers who wouldn't otherwise have their voices heard.
1: Yeah. yeah. And the thing is, I, I feel like a lot of uh, artists in the industry would uh, appreciate someone like Nolan giving them that brand recognition. If like Nolan is saying it, then suddenly Well, maybe very soon get... some
2: of those other guys will get a big shot when Warner Brothers needs a new big filmmaker <laughs> yeah, to champion. Yeah, yeah. So... Yeah. He might not trash HBO
0: Max so loudly. <laughs> so speaking of... You're, so you're listening to Film Packer, Glenn Fountain and Chris Evans of Right in Speaking of big studios and big studio filmmakers... And streaming. <sighs> streaming. Yeah, Hillbilly Elegy is the new big film on Netflix of the week. It is from director Ron Howard, and it is based on the biopic... Memoir, excuse me, of J.D. Vance. Successful it's venture- based on many biopics that have been made before. Yeah. Successful venture capitalist who grew up in the Appalachian Mountains in Ohio. It is starring Glenn Close, Amy Adams, Haley Bennett, Frida Pinto, and Gabriel Barso and Owen Astalis, respectively, as the young and old J.D. Vance. It is about told in flashback about his experience at Yale Law School and also his early life living in the Appalachian mountains now
2: yeah it feels like a netflix movie to get it out of the way no matter what hollywood
0: stars you put into it these films always feel just like a little bit underdeveloped it feels like a netflix film from a long time it feels like a tv movie now look this is a couple things this has been trashed incessantly every year there's always a film that critics hold out for that okay we can have a go at this and certainly we've seen this To, to be though unlike extremely loud and incredibly close and a few others it's notable that the nature of the criticism hasn't been to, while it's been scathing, it hasn't been sarcastic. I think there's a real reckoning with just how, um, not, I, I think insidious it is just too strong, but how damaging aspects of this film could be mm-hmm. and how, um, I think, how problematic from so many broad perspectives and how it, what, what, what it represents that we'll get into a little bit. Uh, from a filming perspective, a lot of people criticized various aspects from Howard's direction. thing I want to focus on is something I actually haven't really seen talked about, and it's that, and this is such a basic thing to say, but we have to say it. A film is not a set of scenes. It is a collection of scenes creating a whole. It's, Ron Howard yeah. is a filmmaker who tells serialized, chapter-esque um, films. Which is a valid saw, approach, but here yeah, it doesn't work. No, we saw it in solo. Here, every scene stands in stark contrast. Every star scene resets the tone. So the good scenes, by my count four, which I'm happy to say do have good aspects, stand in such stark contrast to the overwhelmingly bad scenes that otherwise litter the film.
2: Right, well, on that note, I just found that it didn't have much momentum. I'm okay with it being told in vignettes, but there wasn't much of a cohesive through line In terms of what what this all adds up to and what story it's telling and because it's so stop start in terms of here's this big loud thing happening and there's another loud thing happening it's not very well
0: modulated so entire film is
2: loud yeah so there isn't much emotional momentum or intellectual continuity it just feels like random snatches of oscar clips
1: I mean, it just feels like a play that's been cinematically adapted, essentially. I but was a thinking, play would have
2: more literary yeah, cohesiveness. but
1: I was thinking of that Denzel Washington film called Fences, and that's probably a very direct comparison from this one. Now, I liked that f- uh, film. is a subject matter, but a
2: very different approach.
1: From that sense, because at least it was not trying to... Uh, I, I liked it in the sense that it, the play and the staging of it... I mean, I don't know, Aaron Glenn disagrees very much so. Uh, it was not trying to be cinematic, whereas I think in this one, in trying to be cinematic, whereas still failing comprehensively, both as a play that is cinematically staged and also as a piece of cinema, I think this film, failed on both accounts, it was even less engaging for me.
0: Right. I, the only analogy I would make with the play is the performances. Mm-hmm. Now, if this, if Amy Adams and Glenn Close were doing those performances in the Queen's Theatre on Shaftesbury Avenue... and They're playing to the, the back, back rows. They're playing to the back rows. It's the same, the fences analogy, the scenes with Denzel Washington just screaming at, at the camera, sorry, screaming, shouting very loudly. It's the same with Nathan Lane and Matthew Broderick in the producers' film. They are at a heightened level. Their performances aren't bad, they're just for a different medium. Yeah. And the problem is it draws attention to the fact that the other actors in this film, including the two actors who are cast as Vance, aren't especially good. That's true, but Haley Bennett was very good. Hayley Bennett was and, good, and but she was, barely, she was barely
2: in it. She was barely in it, but perhaps the reason she seems so, so good in comparison is because there's some subtlety and restraint, because she doesn't need to be winning an Oscar with every scene. Um, going back both, to what, it'd be clear, Amy Adams and Glenn Close are both
0: going for Oscars. With
2: that's us. right. And I was saying earlier on about how um, because it's always so loud emotionally, things don't really register much as, as in terms of having a cohesive through line through the film. And that's also true of the performances because yeah. despite how hard they're trying, I, it didn't to me feel that Amy Adams or Glenn Close. Were particularly good. Quite they're, hollow. They're affecting in moments, but firstly, um, the material lets them down. I always struggle to think a performance is good when it when it's badly written, honestly. Um, but it can sometimes a performance can transcend the writing, but it doesn't here because with su- such little modulation, there's no subtlety to the performances. There's no contrasts to make the big moments feel affecting. Yeah. Instead, it, it's just kind of like a mess of the particularly mannered way. Like way that they've chosen to portray Appalachian stereotypes just coming at you full force, loudly. As Glenn said last night, this is a very loud film. We were chatting about it.
1: Also, just as an aside, what was Frida Pinto doing in this movie? I mean, after Slumdog Millionaire, a, she's the just the, the love interest.
2: Thankless, I
0: thankless know, thankless but role. just
1: after Slumdog Millionaire, I mean, where has her career trajectory gone? I mean, I just feel so sad. I mean, she should fire her agent and hire someone better.
0: Hmm. Yeah, look, she she could have gotten the better role. It, it, it wasn't well written. Um, speaking of the writing of this film, this was made... To be a response to the times, JD Vance he put up, and he's, as is he's his memoir, as an explanation and an understanding of Trump's America or areas that vote over Trump. But this is a film by design, and it's because of Howard, it's so politically neutered and mm. empty. It's trying to be open to everyone. It's not trying to hit any buttons. But in the film, that and material that by Vance's own statements. Is heavily political why is this just so reserved in every respect and I'm not talking about moments where there's a Trump sign in the corner I'm talking about looking getting at issues that have been raised by the 2016 and 2020 election, it doesn't explicitly or otherwise. Well, what is this movie really about
2: and what is it really saying? You know, it opens with this really dumb on-the-nose voiceover of uh, a sermon on the radio setting out the themes of the film yeah. and talking about the lost American Never dream. A good sign. Yeah, <laughs> pretty bad sign. And then it's basically, okay, rich people are snobs, poor people are trying to do good, um, bad drugs will ruin
0: your life. Like, it's just a bunch of
1: yeah, how many status quo, having
0: boring that, messages playing to stereotypes. Having said that, of a few good scenes in the film, um, I think the best one was the one involving deliberation over a drug test. Um, there was a scene in the car between Glenn Close and the child. There was a sequence involving the Meals on Wheels speaking to the poverty aspect. These were good that was scenes. The
2: the Meals on, on Wheels scene was good. You're right. Um, as one scene that really spoke to me in the film, um, when... The when um, J.D. Vance comes to see his mother after she's OD'd and um, she says to him, you know, not to worry about her so much because I've actually been doing doing well. I've just had a down month. I thought that that felt really real and spoke to the ways a lot of people process mental illness.
0: Yes. There were a lot of good scenes in that respect. Um, An early scene, quite a confronting scene involving abuse that begins in a car, I think actually was handled reasonably well. Actually, yeah, that was actually handled well. Yeah. There, there are moments.
2: It's just that the film, but
1: yeah. Uh... Before that, I think we might have a placebo effect because of that, because so much of the film is so extremely loud. These moments also make an impact because these are not that loud in comparison. The, I mean, so they also stand out because the, these Ron are the I, moments, these are not trying because the, they're the already scenes, dramatically so strong.
2: The other scenes we were talking about are, are these quiet ones, but the, the car scene was quite loud and actually quite well executed. Like I've always thought Ron Howard is not that good a director in terms of handling visuals and in terms of you know basic things like blocking and such. I've thought he's he's sort of quite mediocre Across the board, but he did.
0: Like pull, Rush was good. He hasn't made yeah. a good film otherwise in he, a long time. He pulled that scene off pretty well, though. A scene with a lot going on. Yeah, so props to him for that, I guess. There's another scene <laughs> sort of correlated between the grandmother and child, which again is handled quite well, except it can't, and it involves a few platitudes, but it is actually. A good scene in and of itself but it's preceded by so many platitudes mostly coming from the glenn Kirk's character it's very poorly written there's all these buzz moments to try to get into marketing as chris and i were talking about last night the terminator line that's probably oh, yeah, in the, the media the, the, the so terminator
2: bad. line is just silly just yeah. terribly written there's a lot of terrible dialogue in this yeah. um terrible voiceovers uh terrible musical score terrible musical. the musical score is so intrusive and so this is meant to be uplifted. Are you uplifted yet, guys? This is uplifting. Da, 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 da. Like, you know, that skippy, like... It, it's it's like if A Beautiful Mind were trying to be more
0: energetic and Actually, a good movie. I yeah, will give some credit to a Beautiful Mind.
2: But, yeah, the score yeah. is just...
1: Oh, God. And,
0: I'm, and I've just got to note quickly the worst scene in the film, which is the scene where we see a bunch of kids doing kid things. And it's not how kids act. It's pretty sad coming from the guy who was in American Graffiti but it is, this is not a realistic portion, also, a portrayal of much. Also, Happy
1: Days, right? Yes, he was in Happy Days. Yeah, yeah, he was too. an actual kid in Happy
2: There's Days. There's a lot of just unrealistic acting and, and poorly written little scenes all throughout the film. Also, how does a guy who's been at Yale Law School for more than a year not know how to use forks at a fine dining restaurant? Like, I feel like he would have gone to dinner somewhere fancy
0: at some point in his life by then, even as a poor person. Gilmore Girls established very clearly what it is like in the Yale Dining Hall. We've all seen it. Yeah, exactly. So that is Hillbilly Elegy. It is currently screening on Netflix. Um, SFF are having their one-car-wide in January at the Art Gallery and at Dendy Cinemas Newtown. Happiest Season is in cinemas now. The Children's, Veterans, Japanese, and antenna Film Festivals are all screening around Sydney and online now. But let us know what you want us to fight about. Stay tuned for the Sonic Assassin. This has been Glenn Falcons, and Chris Emmons, of Virat Nehru. Check out City, They've got a lot of great films. Subscribe to us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Music, wherever you listen to podcasts. And have a wonderful night and enjoy movies. Good night.
2: Bye.